Will you please turn in your Bibles to its very first page, Genesis chapter 1. We're going to be looking at eight verses in Genesis 1 today, so we want everybody to have a Bible to follow along. So these brothers are going to make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, get their attention, and they'll get one of those to you so that you can follow along. I recently attended a one-day seminar about how churches and other organizations can help people with mental health issues. The seminar included, though, something I don't really enjoy. It included games and mixers to help you get to know the people at your table. Now, I do want to get to know the people at my table, but I could do without the games. And I especially don't like it when it involves something I'm not very good at, which is not very hard to find. And at this particular seminar, one of the things they had us do was draw what our conception of what someone looks like when they're having a panic attack. Now, you see, I can't draw. I cannot even draw a decent-looking stick figure. So I had a panic attack, and <clears throat> and I got out of having to draw what somebody looks like having one. The truth is, I'm no artist, but I very much admire the giftedness of those who are. In fact, we have several in our congregation. And I'm fascinated with the artist's work because they begin with something unrecognizable, perhaps a blank canvas, and then piece by piece, stroke by stroke, line by line, they make something intelligible. Unless, of course, it's modern art, in which you can't tell at all. But the idea is, for real artists, they make something intelligible and beautiful. From the conception in their mind, they're able to skillfully produce what they envision. In the opening chapter of the Bible, we have God, our creator, as an artist. But this artist did not even begin with a canvas. He began with his plan, and he began to create it out of nothing. But like any artist, he did begin with a conception. And when we're watching an artist at work, or listening to a lecture, or waiting for a meal prepared by a chef... Most of us are willing to stick with it if we believe there's an end game, if we believe it's going somewhere. And if that's the case, then it's worth the wait. Well, the creation account in Genesis chapter 1 is moving somewhere, somewhere marvelous, in fact. But in order to get there, some essential elements are required. So on the first of the six days of creation, God creates light. And here's what the very first verse of Genesis 1 says, I remind you. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Now, as I've explained in recent weeks as we go through our series in this opening book of God's Word, verse number 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth is a standalone statement. And then verses 2 through 31 are an explanation of how God brought the earth into its present fashion. The earth, according to verse 2, was without form and empty. 
And God, we saw last week, started it on a rotation of 24-hour days with a temporary light source. That's the light source referred to in verse number 3. That light source set the contours of what constitutes a day. Evening and morning, verse number 5 says, is a day. Excuse me, yes, verse 5 says, is the first day literally our one day. So the rest of the six days of creation are going to say the second day and the third day. But on that very first day, it doesn't say it was the first day. It literally says the evening and the morning constitute a day, one day. And so God is making it clear that a day is a 24-hour cycle as he begins his creative activity. And one commentator compared the condition of the world at that point in creation to a room full of mud and water and heat pulsating like a moving blob. And in it, there would have been no breathing space. All the material elements and energy are present, but the dividing or the separating and organizing of these elements, which would be necessary to make the earth habitable, had not yet occurred. It was, to use the words of others, a chaos that had not yet been fashioned into a cosmos. And that fashioning, that separating, that dividing, in order to make something out of nothing, as the artist does his work, requires three separations. We saw last week that God separated the light and the darkness. And today we're going to see that he separated the earth and the heavens and the water and the dry land. We are seeing, friends, God the artist moving pieces around and putting pieces into place to go to his very good destination. Let's ask God to help us then as we look at his word. Our Father, we thank you again for the blessing of being here in this room for this purpose, to learn of you, to worship you, to praise you, to be conformed to your character. Lord, we ask you to grant us attention. Many of us have had long weeks, perhaps a long day yesterday, and it may be hard for us to focus. We ask you to help us to do that. We ask you to open our hearts so that we'll receive your truth Make application so that we please you with our lives. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Every week we supply for you an outline of the message. And we have that for you inserted in your program. So if you don't have that out as yet, please take that out. And we'll be looking at it in just a moment. Now God is taking six days to fashion his creation. Which should suggest to all of us that God is not looking to show us how fast he can create. We know how fast God can create, right? instantaneously. God doesn't have to take one day. God doesn't have to take one minute, actually, to create anything. But in fact, God is taking time in order to teach us some lessons. We saw some of those last week. We'll see some more again this week. This is showing us something about God and the way he works. He's not, now hear this, he is not just interested in the product. God is interested in the process by which that product is created. We're going to see that God not only produced the product of the world in which we live, but he is at work fashioning a product in us. But God doesn't jump to the end with that product, but rather is interested in the process and very much involved in the process of what he is making us to be. So first of all, in your outline, I want you to notice that Genesis 1 teaches us that our creator is sovereign. Our creator is sovereign. Our creator is sovereign. Verse 6. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. 
So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. Now, when the NIV, which most of you have in front of you, and those Bibles that were being distributed, those are the New International Version, and that's what I'm reading from, it has the word vault in those verses several times. The word that's translated vault is in the King James Version, firmament. And so God created a firmament that separated the waters below from the waters above. Or some translations use the word expanse. I think expanse is a good word. Firmament is not a good word because it it implies something firm, something solid. And some have inferred from that that the idea is that God created a kind of dome that shields the earth from that which is outside the dome, a dome that covers the earth. But it's really an an expanse, a space between what's below and what's above. And we'll explain what that is in, in just a bit. Now, some have thought, and perhaps you have heard, that this separation and these waters above resulted in a, a vapor canopy. It was a very popular theory for a lot of years, and there are good reasons for its popularity by Bible-believing people. But some have believed that this separation of the waters below and the waters above resulted in this vapor canopy above the earth that produced many health and enviro- environmental benefits for the early earth and its inhabitants, And this vapor canopy then is touted as an explanation for the long lifespans that you read about that people had in these early chapters of the Bible and that we will encounter and explain in the weeks ahead. The vapor canopy theory is also used to explain where the waters came from that produced the great flood that we will see many weeks from now in Genesis chapters 7 and 8. But the Bible actually says nothing about this supposed protective canopy. And in fact, there are actually a number of scientific problems with this idea. I'm just going to list these quickly for you. But scientists tell us, Christian scientists, creation scientists, that there's the what they call the heat problem. Because a large vapor canopy over the earth would so increase heat that it would roast all living things. There's what they call the light problem. Starlight that was given in verse 14 for signs and seasons could not be seen very well and sunlight could not have reached through with sufficient heat to support tropical plants. There's the pressure problem because a vapor canopy holding more than 40 feet of water would increase such high pressure at its base that its temperature would exceed 220 degrees Fahrenheit. There's the support problem. Because the vapor could not have survived for the many centuries between the creation and the flood, it would eventually disappear. And then there's the ultraviolet problem. A canopy surrounding the atmosphere would not have had would would not have been protected from ultraviolet light, which would have disassociated water into hydrogen and oxygen and thereby would have destroyed the canopy. Now there are other scientific problems with this vapor canopy theory as well. And since the Bible does not specify that the waters above that verse 7 refers to are a vapor canopy, and because it has all the issues I mentioned and more, I'd recommend against that interpretation. So then what are these waters above? It's clear to most of us that the waters below are the waters that that we know, the waters of, of the earth. But God separated the waters 
and separated the waters such that there are these waters above that verse 7 speaks of. Well, let's look for clues in the text itself. And one such clue is the purpose that's assigned to this vault, or better, I think, expanse in verse 6. The purpose is to, quote, separate water from water. The idea is that initially the earth was surrounded by by water. And then on day two now, God has God has separated the waters into upper water, as it were, and, and lower water, separating water from water. And so the expanse holds water above the land. That much is certain. And the second clue is the name that's given to this expanse, this vault, in verse 8. It's called, God called it, sky. And then there are the uses of vault or expanse in the rest of chapter 1. Verse 14 says it's the place where God put the sun, moon, and stars. We'll see that next week. But verse 20 says it's also the place where birds fly across the vault of the sky or the expanse of the sky. The expositor's Bible commentary asks, is there a single word or idea that would accommodate such uses of the term vault or expanse? Cosmological terms like ceiling or vault or global ocean that are often used for expanse do not suit the use of the term in verse 20 where the birds fly. Such explanations are too specific for the context of chapter 1. It appears more likely that what's in view is something within the everyday experience of the natural world in a general way, that place where the birds fly and where God placed the lights of heaven. In English, the word sky appears to cover this sense well. And in fact, that's exactly what the expanse is called in verse number 8. So, the expositor's Bible commentary says, and I agree, that the waters above is a reference to the clouds. That is, the view that we see in biblical passages that were written after the creation. All biblical passages were written after the creation, in fact. But after this, the references to the waters above appear to be referring to to clouds. Now, one of the reasons that this vapor canopy theory was so popular is because in Genesis chapter 7, that we'll get to in a few months, it refers to the floodgates of the heavens being opened. And so the idea was these waters above were there as this vapor canopy, and then God just unleashed that, and then that vapor canopy disappeared after the flood. Well, that was apparently not when those floodgates were opened, not the vapor canopy, because it's still around years later. Second Kings chapter 7 says this, What if the Lord should open the floodgates of the heavens? Same phrase that's used in Genesis chapter 7. And further, the psalmist says in Psalm 104, The Lord stretches out the heavens like a tent and lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. And so God's referring to the still existence after the flood of these upper waters. And then Proverbs chapter 8 says this, He set the heavens in place. He marked out the horizon on the face of the deep. He established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep. And so it appears with all of that that the waters above are in fact the, the clouds. And the waters below are the waters that we're aware of. God's going to call them seas, as we will see in just a bit. Now, God's sovereignty, I say in this first point, our creator is sovereign. Now, how do we see then God's sovereignty? Well, we see it in a couple of ways in this passage. 
Verse 7 says, and God said, and then at the end of verse 7, and it was so. And we see the same thing in verses 9 and 11. God says the word, and it's done. Cecil B. DeMille, who directed the famous movie, The The Ten Commandments, he captured this when in that movie he put the words, so let it be written, and so let it be done. He put those words in the mouth of the Pharaoh of Egypt, who was opposing the God of Israel, believing that he, Pharaoh, was a God himself, and therefore his word is creation's command. But only the sovereign Lord of the universe can command all things at all times to do his bidding, and even to bring into existence those things that were not. We see God's sovereign control of his world in his simply speaking and his will being done immediately. And we're also going to see it in his naming of the components of the infrastructure of this world he's creating. In verse 8, he calls the vault, the expanse, sky. And in the ancient Near East, naming something or someone indicated that you have control over it or them. And we're going to see this later in chapter 1 in the weeks ahead. But it's not just he called the the vault, the expanse, sky. In fact, literally in, in Hebrew, it's literally he called to the expanse and said sky. It's like he makes the expanse and then he points at it. He points at what he's made and he tells it what it's going to be called. You have this very same thing in verse 10. God called the dry ground land and gathered the waters The gathered waters he called seas. It's literally, and he called to the dry land, earth. And he called to the gathered waters, seas. And you also have that same thing in verse 5 that we saw last week. Verse 5 says, he called to the light and said day. And he called to the darkness and he said night. God makes all of these things by fiat command. He shows his sovereignty by simply saying, and it happens. And he shows his control by naming and telling everything he makes what its name will be. This is the God who, through the prophet Isaiah, said, My purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. From the east I summon a bird of prey, from a far-off land a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that I will do. In Isaiah's words, the words of the Lord that Isaiah spoke and recorded for us are simply going back to the very opening verses of the Word of God. In the beginning, God, and God introduces himself as the sovereign God who is in absolute control of everyone and everything that he makes. Our creator is sovereign. Secondly, our creator is purposeful. Our creator is purposeful. Verse 9, And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Now, when it says in verse 9 that he gathered the dry ground to uh, the the, the water, excuse me, in verse 9, to one place, 
It doesn't mean he gathered it to, to one spot. Notice he called these seas, plural. But rather he gathered the waters to one place as opposed to every place. Because remember, until the third day, the earth was completely covered by water as though the earth was an ocean without a shore and nowhere for a boat to land. The earth was therefore not a habitable environment. And God's purpose was for the earth to be inhabited. And our God is a purposeful God. And so again, through the prophet Isaiah, he who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but he formed it to be inhabited. Our God is sovereign and our God is a God of purpose. He designs, he purposes, and then he carries out those purposes. Now, the word of God throughout rests upon this truth given to us in the very first chapter. When it recalls the fact that God has purposes for his world and he has purposes especially for his people. Dear friend, do you understand that this God who is a purposeful God has his good purposes for you? And with everything that he is allowing to happen in your life, this sovereign God, this purposeful God, is moving you toward the fulfillment of his purpose for you. That's why the Bible says in the New Testament, the one who calls you is faithful. And he will do it. He will do what? (laughs) He will fulfill his, his purpose. And what is its ultimate purpose for us? It is for us as for all things, for us to bring glory to him. Glory means the display of his character, which means I have to be Conform to the image of Christ in order to perfectly display one day the character of God and glorify him. And the one who calls you is faithful and he is doing it and will do it. Philippians chapter one says this. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So as you wander in the wilderness, as it were of your life and whatever's going on in your life, you need to remember that in the opening page of the Word of God, God reveals Himself, makes Himself known as a God of purpose, and He has and is carrying out His purposes for you and me. Verse 11 says, Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds, and it was so. The land produced vegetation, Plants bearing seed according to their kinds. Trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. Now note, the plants and trees that God created on the third day were full grown at the beginning. That's why it says they had their their seed in them. That is, vegetable life was formed with a capacity to reproduce itself through seed according to their kinds, so as to pass on its living characteristics in an orderly fashion for that future which God had in store for his creation. Now, this puts the lie to the really literally unbelievable idea of abiogenesis. That's a fancy term, but what does that, what does that mean? It is sometimes called spontaneous generation. You see, these these seeds could only have their seed in them if a life-giving force produced that. 
It is absolutely impossible, literally unbelievable, that there would be spontaneous generation of life from non-life. But believe it or not, scientists, many, many scientists believe in spontaneous generation. Life from non-life. It also puts the lie of to evolution. Because this verse speaks of what, this passage speaks of what some have called fixity of kinds. That each is according to their kind. You notice that phrase several times in this passage. That these kinds are fixed. And so God makes each of the, each of the plant life. And he's going to make the animals as we will see. He's going to make them in a, a fixed way. And there can be variation and wide variation on a horizontal level according to their kind. But there is no variation going from one species to another. And that's why the Bible tells us all of this is according to their kind. Now, it is amazing what our God has done in just creating a tiny seed and all that can come out of that. And I wanted for some who are more knowledgeable than I in a very colorful way to tell that to you. And so we have a segment of a video. It lasts about eight minutes in order to make that point. Every seed is a miniature miracle. God has programmed the tiny sequoia seed to become the largest tree on earth, reaching nearly 300 feet tall and weighing many tons. God has designed the humble apple seed to yield a bounty of delicious fruit for years to come. And God has planned a multitude of seeds to produce spectacular blossoms in abundance. Consider the many varieties of seeds. As stated in Genesis, each seed always produces after its own kind. And just as the Lord intended, the fruits and byproducts that they bear have supplied the needed food and resources for man and his environment. In the first chapter of Genesis, God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth, and it was so. So the Creator made life with the ability to reproduce after its kind. Plants produce seed. This answers the question, which came first, the seed or the plant? Clearly, God created plant life with the seed in itself. Seeds are masterpieces of micro-miniaturization. <laughs> Inside each seed is a little baby, a little embryonic plant. It's already got leaves, you know, and a stem and a root. It's surrounded by a seed coat that protects it and filled with all kinds of receptors listening in to environmental signals so it knows what temperature, what moisture conditions, how much oxygen. All these things have to be present before it will sprout. And the first seeds we find as fossils look just like the seeds that we have today. The seed is the first reproductive structure God made on creation day three, and it's the way living things ever since have multiplied after kind. Today, scientists have discovered what Scripture stated all along. Inside the unassuming seed is life itself. Contained within are living cells, 
tiny factories of amazing complexity. No scientist has been able to build a synthetic seed, and no seed is simple. Seeds are programmed to remain dormant until water and warmth are available. Who installed this ability to monitor temperature and humidity? Who determined the proper time for the seed to germinate? Who told the root, you must go down, and the stem, you must head upward? Do you see the guiding hand of our all-loving Creator? In order to sprout and thrive, seeds require the proper soil nutrients, the ideal properties found in water, the correct frequency spectrum of light, the right atmosphere, and the necessary pollinators. All of these must have been in place from the beginning in order for seeds to yield a harvest of blessings for mankind. What a drab world it would be without flowering plants. From unassuming seed to magnificent blossom, flowers reflect a sliver of God's splendor. There are a great variety of flowering plants flourishing all over the globe, and each with its own unique flower, fruit, and fragrance. As a blossom expands, its fragrance fills the air, Consider that each flower always produces its own particular perfume. Even more amazing, God uses the same elements, soil, light, and water, to produce all these brilliant varieties. Remarkably, certain flowers are designed to know what time it is. California poppies, morning glories, and daylilies are three beautiful examples. Opening and closing with clock-like precision, they are sensitive to atmospheric pressure, length of daylight, temperature and humidity, and must therefore have built-in biorhythms. Each leaf of a plant is also a marvel. Long before man discovered how to harness solar power, the Creator installed miniature solar panels in every green leaf. As the leaf expands, it is programmed to face the sun to receive its energy. This energy powers its chemical factories. As a result, carbon dioxide is absorbed, oxygen is released, and hydrogen is used in making sugars. How ingenious of our God to design leaves to absorb man's waste gas and release the oxygen which every creature needs for survival. Photosynthesis is also the basis for all our food supply. Thankfully, countless numbers of God's little green machines perform this service every day. Flowering plants are such a testimony to God's provision. Not only are they critical in terms of providing food and medicine and various other aspects of life as we know it, but we would simply not be able to exist without the flowering plants. Well, that ties in with the large group of animals called the arthropods. One of the groups of arthropods would be the insects. Insects need the plants, and plants most assuredly need the insects in terms of pollination, in terms of keeping 
that plants fertilized on a year-to-year basis. Uh, Genesis 2.9 tells us that God created uh, green plants pleasant to the sight and good for food. Uh, plants use the amazing process of photosynthesis to trap energy from the sun to put together carbon dioxide molecules from the air, water molecules from the soil, uh, to make sugar molecules a basic uh, building block for all of the other food groups. Where do the plants get the carbon dioxide? We breathe it out. Animals breathe out the carbon dioxide. Plants absorb that carbon dioxide. Uh, they absorb the water. They release oxygen from the water molecules so we can breathe it in, burn the sugar to produce the carbon dioxide that they can absorb to make more sugar. You may get the idea all of these parts have to fit together at the same time. That's one thing as we look at the creation account, how God made plants, animals, people, all the physical features of the universe to fit together in an intricate pattern reflecting his glory. Food, oxygen, medicine, fuel, raw materials. Surely the Lord designed plants for our benefit. The rich diversity of flowering plants and the many purposes they serve all point to a wise and compassionate creator. Though magnificent in bloom, the glory of the flower quickly fades. Scripture likens man's life on earth to a flower so quick to pass away. Therefore, how important it is for each of us to seek everlasting life today. The songwriter said, this is my father's world. And in the rustling grass, I hear him pass. And he speaks to me everywhere. Our creator is sovereign. And our creator is purposeful. And lastly, I say in your outline, our creator is good. Our creator is good. Many years ago, I was counseling with a man. It was before... We started this church. I was counseling with a man who was going through some difficulties. And over and over again, in the midst of recounting his trials, he said, I know God is sovereign. I know God is in control. And I remember saying to him, but do you not only know that God is sovereign, but do you also trust that God is good? You see, friends, you can believe that God is in control, that there is this God who is in control of you and in control of everything. But if we don't also believe that the God who is in control has a purpose that is and is himself good, then we could still despair. But our creator is not only sovereign and purposeful. Our creator is good. Now, how do we know that? I say in your outline, each day is preparation for the next. Each day is preparation for the next. Verse 10 says that what God did on the third day in causing the dry ground to appear and then immediately producing vegetation. Verse 10 says that, quote, it was good. But I want you to notice that it doesn't say, it does not say it was good when God separated the waters and created the sky on day two. Now, why not? Because on day two, the infrastructure for sustaining life was not complete. By creating plants and causing them to grow, it's now life-sustaining. Now hear this. God was on day two, even when day two is itself not good. God was. 
God was good on day two, even when day two itself was not. And God is good even when the situation is not. Day two is always preparation for day three. There's always a next day coming. You say, but one day I'm going to die. But for the Christian, there's always a next day coming. Because death is simply a transition for the Christian. And that's why the Bible can say, as it does in James chapter 1, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith does something and does something good. It produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete. This God is a good God. And each day, every day of your life is preparation for the next. Romans chapter 5 says as well, we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character produces hope. Each day is preparation for the next. And I say in your outline, each stage is preparation for the next stage or each phase is preparation for the next phase. Now, here's why I say that. There's a structure to the six days of creation that's important for us to see. Remember that at the beginning of day one, immediately after the earth was called into existence, verse two says it was formless and empty. God begins right away to remedy the formlessness by fashioning and shaping it. And he will remedy the emptiness by filling the earth. And so many have pointed out rightly that days one through three are days of forming. And days four through six are days of filling. And both of those are for the purpose of achieving God's good purpose that required remedying the formlessness and the emptiness of the original creation. Forming precedes filling. And forming is not immediate. God could have formed the earth instantaneously. But he took time literally took time to do that. And then after forming it, days four through six that we'll begin to see next week, he begins to fill it. It could be that God creates immediately, but God has chosen to teach us discursively, learning bit by bit and experience by experience, day by day and year by year. That means... That you not only go from day to day, you go from phase to phase. And God has designs for every phase of life and every trial of life and every circumstance of life. He is forming you in order to use you and to to fill you, to fill you with all the capacities for which he has made you. And we see this in stories throughout the Bible. You'll see one later in the book of Genesis, the famous story of Joseph being sold into slavery treacherously by his brothers. And you all remember how that story went, that Joseph rose to prominence in Egypt, that his brothers thought he was long gone and was probably dead, but they find themselves having to go to Egypt years later for food. And who's in charge of distributing food? None other than, than Joseph. And they realize that at some point that this is the Joseph that we sold for dead, and now we are coming to beg him for food. He could have them killed. And here's this famous statement near the end of Genesis chapter 50. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Have you ever thought about what Joseph was thinking about in all of the phases of that drama that he went through? 
But forming precedes filling. Always. God's goodness, friends, is objective. God's goodness is here. It is there to be seen all around us. It is objective if we have eyes to see. But we have trouble seeing it subjectively after the fall, after the entrance of sin that we'll see in Genesis chapter 3. Therefore, we not only have to look at the evidence. Hear this. We have to have the capacity to experience the evidence that we look at of God's goodness. Otherwise, you can live in God's good world. You can see all of God's good gifts and still doubt whether or not this God is in fact good. That's why the Bible says, Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Theologian Samuel Storms was asked, but how can you tell me to desire something when right now, honestly, I don't desire God? I can't just flip a switch in my soul and suddenly long for something that I, that I find boring and dry and incomprehensible, like reading the Bible, perhaps. And Storm says, true, you can't just flip a switch in your soul, but you can obey. You can discipline yourself to read and study and meditate and memorize and listen to God's word. All the while, you trust God to use it to change your desires and to create a new affection in your heart. What this says is that just as essential as having the desires for the word that we are supposed to have is having the trust in God that he gives what it is he commands. If God says we're to desire him, when we don't desire then we trust him that he must know something we don't. He must have some power we don't have. There must be a way. God commands it, so there must be a way. And most often, he will do it without you even knowing it, Storm says. No goosebumps, no chills or physical manifestations or angelic appearances at the foot of your bed. But as you expose your soul to the word and immerse your mind in its truths, the Holy Spirit will gradually and often imperceptibly reconfigure your thinking and ignite your feelings and recalibrate your heart and stir up a desire for even more. If the word of God is powerful enough to create new life through new birth, then the word of God is certainly powerful enough to create desire in languishing Christian souls. If God's word recreated you by causing you to be born again, can it not create desire in you as well? Then trust it, he says. And that's why I say in your take-home truth, God's means, the means that God uses in the forming that he's doing in your life, God's means always have good ends. God's means always have good ends. Now, we're going to bow together in just a moment. But some of you came into this room carrying with you the cares of the world and wondering where God is in all of this. And I've tried to show you, hearkening back to the very first chapter of the Bible, that the God who reveals himself is the sovereign, purposeful, and good God that we claim to know. We're going to bow and pray. Let us confess then our unbelief. Let us confess our lack of trust in the goodness of God and ask God by his spirit and through his word to rekindle our desire for him. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you again for the blessings of this Lord's day. 
and the opportunity to open your word together and to see who you are there. Lord, you have given us your word to reveal yourself to us. And in the creation account, you reveal so very much to us about your control, about your purposefulness, and yes, about your goodness. Lord, we as sinners, though, are blinded because of our sin, not because of any lack in you, not because of any lack of objective reality that points us to your beauty and to your goodness, but because of our inability to see, blinded by our sin. Oh, Lord, remove the blinders from the eyes of all in this room. Remove the blinders from the eyes of those who claim to know your name. Use your word to rekindle a desire within us for the true and living God. For he is there to be found. And Lord, tasting of you, tasting of your goodness, abounds with the greatest joy that any human being could know. You made us to know you and you made us for yourself. And Lord, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.